Welcome. Thank you for listening to Clear Bible, a ministry of Life Together Churches, New Joy Fellowship, and me, Tom Hilpert. We're glad you're listening. We're in the book of 1 Samuel, and this is part 14 in our sermon series on 1 Samuel, part 14. And we're going to continue to look at chapter 15 because we're on the topic of holy war. And last time I really only started there's, there's a lot more to be said about it, but let's read the text and then we'll jump in. And I'm going to read to you from 1 Samuel 15, 12 through 23 or 24. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. I pray that we would hear your word, that it would confront us with the ways we need to change and also that it would confront us with your grace and your love for us and the fact that we, we need that grace. So help us to, to receive it as we listen to your word now and help us to receive it through what I'm going to say. Use me in whatever way you need to so that that happens and use each one of us who listen. Use our, our ears and, and our minds so that we hear what you want us to hear. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'll start at verse 12, but I'll, I'll give you the lowdown. We, we talked about this last time. Saul was told to go kill all of the Amalekites, and including their king and all the animals. And uh, the Amalekites were a, a nomadic tribe that had attacked Israel on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land. And they also roamed in and out of the Promised Land because they were nomads, and they frequently attacked Israelite towns. So the Lord commanded the Israelites when they first came into the land of Canaan, he commanded them to wipe out all these nomadic tribes, or not the nomadic tribes, the tribes that lived within the land. But the Amalekites, now the Lord is pointing out to Saul, we want you to do the same thing to the Amalekites. You need to wipe them out, um, you know, just decimate their cultures. Don't let them remain in the land as a distinct culture. And so Saul was supposed to do this to the Amalekites, and, and he went out and fought a battle. But rather than killing the king, he captured the king. And rather than killing all of the animals and destroying all the plunder, he took the best stuff and brought it back. And the Lord revealed this to Samuel. And this is where we pick up chapter 15, verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul. But it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself, then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, Then what is this sound of sheeps and goats and cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and goats and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we destroyed. Stop, cried Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, Although you once considered yourself unimportant, haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what is evil in the Lord's sight? 
But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalekite, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder. The best, what was set apart for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words. Because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. So let's stop there. So as I talked about last time, uh, last time I was trying to make the point that it's possible that these commands to annihilate or completely wipe out the various tribes was a command not to kill every single man, woman, and child, and donkey, but, well, it was to kill every donkey, but it wasn't necessarily to kill all the, the people. It was to completely decimate and destroy their underlying cultures. The sort of talk of killing every man, woman, and child might not be literal. It was typical for the ancient Middle East, and there are many instances of it from history and even within the Bible that helps us to see it was normal to use that kind of exaggerated language, similar to the way I said that one sports team obliterates another. Having said all that, I don't think we can say definitively that it is not literal. And for those of you who aren't part of our local house churches here, I actually got some pushback on this. A lot of people said they didn't think I should be saying that, that actually it, they thought that it was literal. And I want to say it could be. It, it still definitely could be literal. I will not go so far as to say it absolutely can't be literal. I suspect that there's an idiom involved here, a cultural way of talking, but I certainly could be wrong. And even if I'm right, even if it doesn't mean the death of every single individual in these cultures, it clearly does mean literal physical death for a great number of people in those cultures, and it does mean the complete destruction of them as cultures. So therefore, even if, if it's not completely literal, there's a great deal of death and violence here, and we need to grapple with that. And the fact is, if we grapple with it in a non-literal way, you know, as, as, as a non-literal command, we're also grappling with it as if it's literal. In other words, the process is the same. Even if it's not literal, we still have to do the same kind of thoughtful work to come to terms with these commands. Because even if they're not literal, they certainly involve a lot of death and violence. <clears throat> And, you know, the big thing we have to grapple with is how could a God that we claim is loving command that kind of violence? So we'll talk about that. First thing, this is not a satisfying answer, but it is a true biblical answer. God does not answer to us. That's the whole point of him being God. You know, if, if, if God is what we believe him to be, the only self-existent being, the creator and originator of everything 
in our universe, if he is infinite and we are not, and we aren't, then God has the right to do whatever he wants. The questions are natural. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with us asking questions about this and saying, gee, this is hard to wrap our heads around. It's hard to become emotionally reconciled to these commands to violence. But our human nature kind of wants God to justify himself to us. And, and that is exactly the opposite of the situation that the Bible reveals. God does not have to justify himself to us. We have to justify ourselves toward him or be justified before him. We're accountable for our actions before God. God is not accountable for his actions to us. If he is the God that the Bible reveals him to be, that's just not the situation. He has the right to do whatever he wants. Not only that, but he might choose to do something that we think is terrible, that we would, if we could, judge him for it, and yet if only we had the same knowledge that God has, we would be able to see that what he's doing is actually good and right and amazing and wonderful. In other words, God's ways are often beyond our limited minds. We can't always understand what God is doing or why he would do a certain thing. And if he's God, we should expect that. So that's one thing. With that in mind, and hopefully that gives us a little bit of humility as we approach this, there are some things that we might be able to wrap our heads around a little bit with regard to this particular issue. In the first place, I think it's about holiness. Several weeks ago, I don't remember how many times ago, I shared a little illustration about what happens to sodium when it comes, pure sodium, when it comes into contact with water. It creates an explosion. Pure sodium cannot exist in the presence of water. And the greatest scientists in the world cannot actually make that happen. They could maybe shield them from one another, but if you actually have sodium in water, it explodes, and then you no longer have sodium in water. They cannot coexist. In the same way, sin cannot coexist in the presence of God. So unless there's some kind of intervention or shielding, God's presence will destroy sin. Now, we live after the time of Jesus, and Jesus and his sacrifice have reconciled us to, to God. They've dealt with that holiness and that sin problem for us. If we trust him, he has made us holy through Jesus. He, Jesus, took the destruction of sin into himself so that we could be spared. But sometimes we forget that without Jesus... God's holiness is a huge problem for sinful people. And by that, I mean all people, because we are all sinners. Sin is so serious and God's holiness is so pure that if it wasn't for Jesus, every living thing associated in any way with sin would be destroyed. And so this command to go and destroy every little thing, every living thing of certain cultures, even if it's not literal, it's still a, a physical illustration of God's holiness and the sin problem. The Israelites certainly imperfectly were living in faith in God's promises to Abraham and Moses. They, they believed them, again, not perfectly, but they, they put their hope in the promises of God. God says, 
he himself, the Lord himself, will redeem Israel from their sins. And, and that was the hope of the Israelites. So the Lord included those who put their hope in his promises in what he was going to do through Jesus. And their faith in God's promises protected them from the effect of God's presence on sin. Paul writes this to the Romans, Romans chapter 3, 1 through 6. So what advantage does a Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the spoken words of God. What then, if some did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. God must be true, even if everyone is a liar, as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I use a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how would God judge the world? So the, this is one answer as well. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on unrighteous people? Absolutely not. God's presence destroys sin, whether or not you believe that is true. The only salvation is through Jesus Christ by faith, and that was true even for the people who lived before the time of Jesus. They didn't understand all of God's promises, but when they put their hope in the promises of God, when they put their hope in God alone, God included them in what he was doing in Jesus and what he was going to do through Jesus. And it says it pretty clearly in Romans chapter 3, Romans 3, 22 through 26. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, even if we're Malachite, in other words. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe, and I would say the best word here would probably be trust, trust that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. <clears throat> so everyone, even in Old Testament times, who believed in God's promises, God looked ahead and included them in what he was going to do in Jesus. And that's not only for Israelites, that's for anyone who is willing to trust the Lord. And so those who rejected God's promises and rejected the sovereignty of the Lord became physical illustrations of how serious God's holiness is and how big a problem our sin is. He was showing the world their desperate need for a Messiah who could bridge the gap between our sin and God's holiness. Because without that, we all should be destroyed. And not in, in a completely literal way, every last one of us. <clears throat> And that might be a good argument then to say it is literal because in, in fact, when it comes to sin, what we deserve is complete destruction, every last one of us. So there's another thing to consider as well. If you're keeping track, this is point number four. 
all of these people groups, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the, the Perizzites, all of the Canaanites, were given a witness to God's holiness, a witness to his grace, and they were given all kinds of time to repent and turn to him. All the way back in the time of Abraham, the Lord said this. This is uh, Genesis chapter 15. The Lord said to Abraham, know this for certain, your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterwards they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried in ripe old age. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Amorites were one of those tribes that Israel was supposed to drive out and destroy. All of the Canaanite tribes were witnesses to the truth of God through Abraham and his nephew Lot, and Abraham's son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. And after Jacob, they had 400 years to change their ways. God was still giving them a chance to repent and live in faith. And then when the Israelites left Egypt, there were 40 years of them wandering in the wilderness and surviving on bread that came from heaven, on water that came out of nowhere. And all of the peoples in the land of Canaan had the opportunity to hear those stories and to see what kind of God they worshipped. And they had a chance to repent, and some of them did. Rahab the, Rahab the prostitute from the city of Jericho was a Canaanite. But she heard, she said, we've all heard what the Lord has been doing for you people of Israel, and I want in on that. And God accepted her with open arms. So anyone who wanted to repent, anyone in these tribes, these Canaanite tribes, could repent and serve the Lord, and they were welcomed into the people of God, and they were not killed. One of King David's mighty men was Uriah the Hittite. Hittites were another one of those tribes. Other less famous people also repented and came to be part of the Lord's people. And when they did, they were welcomed with open arms. They did not have to be destroyed. So all told, these cultures had roughly 800 years before the time of Saul to repent and follow God. And during all those centuries, they were witnesses to the truth about God through the Israelites. So it's not like God woke up one day and said, gee, I really hate the Amalekites. Let me get Saul to go beat up on them, right? The Canaanite cultures had showed over the course of 800 years that they would not live by faith in the Lord, and they would not repent, and they were determined to continue in their sinful, rebellious ways. And so there was no purpose in giving them more time until they were, and until they were eradicated, they were a threat to God's people in the land. And let me talk about that. That's a, a, another reason for this harsh command, is that while the Canaanite peoples continued to live in the land next to the people of Israel, they were a threat to them. They were a threat militarily. And the Amalekites, that was the big threat of the Amalekites. They were a, a military threat as well as a cultural threat. Some of the others who were not nomadic tribes, who the Israelites did not drive out, they became a threat to lead the people of God away from God. I mentioned this last time. Out of all the people in the world, the Israelites were the only ones who understood about living in faith. 
They were the only people entrusted with the word of God. That was the very first Romans passage I read to you in the early part of Romans 3, where he says they, they were given the word of God. They were the only people in the world given the word of God. God could not allow them to become corrupted and lose that word and lose that truth. So the Lord commanded his people to take extreme measures to make sure they did not lose that truth about the grace and goodness and forgiveness of God and the seriousness of our sin without him. There's another point as well. It's geographical. That The promised land, the, the land of Canaan, which became Israel, and then it became Palestine, and then Israel again, it is situated at a crossroads of civilizations. And the people who lived there in ancient times influenced many, many other nations. There were trade routes. Look at it on a map sometime. You can see it's at the intersection of Africa, Asia, and Europe. And so traders went from Africa up into Asia and Europe, and they came back from Europe down to Africa and over to Asia, and they came from Asia to Europe and Africa. They were going all over the world. It's a meeting place of three continents and two oceans, and whoever lived in that geographical location from the beginning of civilization until the fall of the Roman Empire was in a perfect place to spread ideas, culture, and religion to most of the people in the world. And in fact, that is one reason Christianity spread so quickly in the first century AD, because they began in this location and they spread to Africa, Asia, and Europe. It's not coincidence, in fact, that the three most influential religions in the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are all centered in that land. And the reason that those three are so widespread is in part due to geography. And even today, we see that Israel is a major epicenter in the world political situation. So back in the time of Saul, God did not want the depraved, evil practices of the Canaanites to spread around the entire world. They practiced prostitution as a part of worship. In other words, it's, hey, let's go to worship and sleep with prostitutes. How twisted can you be? How, uh, how terrible can you be? to women, how immoral can you be? They sacrificed children to their false gods in acts of demonic worship. They burned their infants alive in demonic worship. They accepted sexual perversions without question, including sex with animals. And this kind of religion and culture was like a cancer. And it was situated in a prime spot, as I've been saying, to spread throughout the whole world. So God had to take the extreme measure of completely removing the cancer before it metastasized. He did not want the traders and travelers carrying these depraved demonic ideas all around the world. Leviticus 18, 21 through 30 describes some of these practices. And some people don't realize this is the context here. It's talking about what the people of the land had done and how bad that was and why the Israelites were to drive them out. You are not to make any of your children pass through the fire to Moloch. That's the sacrifice of infants in, in burning them alive to the god Moloch. Do not profane the name of your god. I am Yahweh. You are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable. You're not to have sexual intercourse with an animal, defiling yourself with it. A woman is not to present herself to an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. 
Do not defile yourselves with any of these practices, for the nations I am driving out before you have defiled themselves by all these things. This land has become defiled, so I am punishing it for its sin, and the land will vomit out its inhabitants. But you are to keep my statutes and ordinances. You must not co commit any of these detestable things not the native or the foreigner who lives among you. For the man, men who are in the land prior to you have committed all these detestable things, and the land has become defiled. If you defile the land, it will vomit you out, as it has vomited out the nations that were before you. So all of these things were being done by these peoples. These were not nice, friendly, peaceful nations. They were not happy earth-loving, wonderful people. They were twisted and perverse. And we don't have God's all-knowing perspective. Last time I mentioned how the Allied nations annihilated Germany and Japan and utterly destroyed their cultures and their economies. And, and in order to stop them from continuing on with these cultures of brutalness and conquest. And it is completely possible that one of these Canaanite tribes would have been the Nazi Germany or the Imperial Japan of the ancient world. We don't know what kind of horror might have been unleashed upon the world if these tribes had been allowed to grow and prosper. Again, as I said at the beginning, we do not know as well as God knows, and we don't know what we don't know. Now, I want to switch gears briefly. Those are some reasons that we can trust God knows what he was doing when he told the Israelites to to commit this kind of war and violence. But another thing I mentioned previously is that Jesus made it very clear that his disciples are not to engage in war to kill his enemies nor to convert them. Just to make sure, I'm going to give you some verses this time. I don't think I gave you those last time. Matthew 26, 52 through 53. This is when the people came to arrest Jesus with clubs and swords. And uh, one of Jesus' followers, in fact, we know it's Simon Peter, took out his sword and, and took a whack at somebody and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place, because all who take up a sword will perish by a sword. Or do you, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels? So Jesus is saying, hey, if you want war, I can win a war in a heartbeat with 12 legions of angels. That's not what's happening here. Put your sword away. That's not how the kingdom of God advances. And then Luke 22, 49 through 51, same situation, different perspective. When all those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. And then John 18, when Jesus was being interviewed by the governor Pilate, the Roman governor, uh, Pilate said, so are you king? Uh, John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. So he's saying, we are not fighting here. It's not that kind of a kingdom. Not the kind of a kingdom that has literal physical armies. And then just in case you're worried about this, let's get to some of Jesus' core teachings, one of his most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 38 through 47. 
You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You've heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Every corrupt tax collector does that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. So we can see Jesus' teaching is very clear. He says, if you want to be a child of your Father in heaven, the way this kingdom works, the way the kingdom of God works from now on, from the time of Jesus on, is love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, be kind to those who are unkind to you. There is no room in here for holy war. And of course, throughout all the teaching, it's, it's really clear Christian theology, how Christian theology interprets the Bible. And because of that, we know that the commands of the Old Testament, certain commands of the Old Testament, at least their literal application, is limited to that Old Testament situation. And that's the case with the Holy War passages. So if somebody comes up to you and says, oh, all religions are the same, the Bible is just as bad as the Koran. The Koran tells people to fight in the name of God, so, so does the Bible. That is not true of Christians. I'll let Jewish people defend themselves. I think they typically have the same interpretation I just mentioned, which is that the commands for ancient Israel are for ancient Israel and not for present day. But I'll, I'll let Jewish people defend that part of it. We Christians interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We look at everything through the lens of the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. And the New Testament shows us that Jesus rejects holy war. So this is absolutely clear. And again, you know, even, even if we didn't have that, we would have the typical interpretive practice of saying the laws of ancient Israel are to be literally applied only in ancient Israel. And so this is absolutely clear. Christians have no command and in fact are told not to engage in literal warfare to spread the gospel or to kill the enemies of the gospel. But let's get down to brass tacks. So what is this verse going to do for us then? We've actually got, I'll give you a little bit today and I'll give you a little bit more next week as well because there's some good stuff here. There is still a kind of holy war for those of us who put our faith in Jesus. It's not literal warfare, but it is an internal commitment to follow Jesus, even if that means utterly rejecting something in our lives that's holding us back from him. Jesus commanded this type of quote-unquote war. It's a war on our flesh. It's a war on sin. It's not literal warfare with weapons. It's a war of the mind and of the heart and of the spirit. Jesus said this, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to go into hell. And so when we look at Saul, Saul had his own thing in his own context. But the issue was, was he willing to radically obey what God asked for him? And we have that same challenge. Is there anything in your life today that you think maybe God wants me to leave this entirely up to him, to give this over to him for destruction or for whatever he might want to do with it? Is there anything he's saying to you, hey, this area of your life, that needs to belong to me completely. Give it all up. It belongs to me alone. It's time. Let it go. I'll give you a couple examples. I want to make sure you guys understand, I never, ever write these sermons with specific people in mind. So if this hits you hard, that's, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. It's not me thinking of you specifically, okay? Besides, there's something like 500 of you who listen to this all the time, so I don't even know most of you. But maybe you like to drink sometimes, and now drinking moderately is fine as far as Scripture says. It's not something the Bible condemns, but maybe in your own personal relationship with the Lord, alcohol is becoming a hindrance. Maybe you can't drink without getting a buzz or you can't stop once you start. Maybe it's costing you too much money. Maybe it's interfering. Uh, it, it's giving you comfort when you should be finding that same comfort in seeking God. And it could be that in your case, the Lord is calling you to stop consuming all alcohol. And that might feel radical, but the Lord might be calling you to that kind of radical obedience, like it was radical for Saul to kill all the Amalekites. Maybe it's a friendship or a relationship, and I'm not talking about marriage, but maybe you're friends with somebody or you're dating somebody or hanging out with people who are actually a hindrance to you growing in your faith. Now, I want to make sure this is very clear. I Tom Hilpert am not calling you to break off any kind of relationship or friendship, but I'm telling you that the Lord might. And that's something to pay attention to you. If something just tweaked at you when I said that, pay attention to that and pray about that and ask him about it. God is compassionate and gracious. We would be lost if he wasn't. Scripture, this scripture especially, also reminds us that he sometimes calls us to a life of radical obedience, to a kind of holy war against our own sins, our own flesh and impulses, our own things that lead us away from Him. It's a life of radical obedience. It reminds us that He does not want anything to get in the way of our relationship with Him. And if He is calling you to take a drastic step, it, it might be that you don't understand that right now. Why would He want you to do that right now? or in this way, but we can trust that his reasons are good even when we don't understand. So let's take a minute now and let him speak to you about anything in your life that he might be asking you to quote-unquote make war upon or to cut off or to eliminate. Holy Spirit, we do ask for your guidance here. Help us to see in our hearts, in our lives, what is interfering in our relationship with you. I pray, Lord, we, we don't have the strength to follow through in obedience, but we know that you can 
create that strength in us. You can allow us. So give us the strength to say yes to you and then give us the strength to obey you in whatever way you're calling us to. We pray all these things right now in the name of Jesus. Amen.